Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to jump into God's word this morning. Lord, we're here this morning because we know that our souls need to be spoken to. We remind ourselves of these truths as we sing these songs, truths of who you are, truths of your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy, your gospel. And Lord, we also need to be, uh, we need to hear truth from you this morning. We pray that you would speak to our souls through your word, that we would be still before you, that we would know that you are God, that we would see you rightly and understand you as you have revealed yourself. So Lord, clear away the obstacles that keep us from beholding you and, and recognizing your glory. I pray that you'd give us a clearer vision of Christ this morning, that we might know you, love you, and trust you as we ought. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please open to Luke chapter 12 once again. I was going to count up how many sermons we are deep into the gospel of Luke, but I forgot to, so I don't know how many sermons we've had in the gospel of Luke. It's been a couple, but we are still in Luke chapter 12, and our text this morning will be Luke 12, 49 through 53. Luke 12, starting in verse 49. Luke 12 and verse 49, Jesus Christ says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Some of you may have seen, if you watched a certain football game last weekend, that there was a commercial that was about Jesus. It showed images of various characters and some surprising combinations, some surprising locations, and they were washing feet. And I believe the, the motive probably of the people who funded this commercial was to get people thinking about Jesus. And it closed with these words, Jesus didn't teach hate. Jesus washed feet. He gets us. Now, I bring this commercial up not because I want to pick it apart and analyze it or, or criticize it, but rather I just simply want to point out that images like that, it allows us to see what we want to see in Jesus. It reinforces popular conceptions about him. It, it is a feel-good message, a message of unity, a message of affirmation. A message attempting to build bridges between the church and the world. They, they really want people to like Jesus. And while the message about Jesus is undoubtedly good news, it's the best news, the truth of Christ involves so much more than what that 60-second ad could possibly convey. And it's essential that we get a realistic picture of Jesus Christ that we know who he really is, that we understand the true nature of his mission, and that we understand the cost of following Jesus. 
The real question is not, does Jesus get us? It's, do we get Jesus? Do we understand who he is? Well, in this text, and again, I'm not reacting to that commercial. This happened to be the next text in our sequential preaching through the Gospel of Luke. In this text, Jesus speaks of fire, he speaks of great distress, and he speaks of division. Those are three severe images, three sobering realities, and perhaps they don't really serve to reinforce that popular conception of Jesus and his mission. But nevertheless, these are necessary truths. Our aim today is to have a clear understanding of Christ, to understand his mission, why it is that he came, so that we would be able to see him not as we want to see him, but so that we might see him and recognize him for who he actually is. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples have become convinced that Jesus really is the Messiah. In chapter 9, Jesus says, you know, he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? There's various answers to that. Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets or something like that. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, in truth, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They refer to Jesus as their Lord, as their master. They believe that he's the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah will he be? What exactly is his messianic mission? Although the disciples had come to clearly understand who Jesus was, they still needed to learn more about why he came and what his coming would mean. And Jesus provides for us in this text three sobering insights into that mission. And the first we find in verse 49, and it's this, the Messiah's mission is to be the agent of divine wrath. It's verse 49, the the Messiah's mission is to be the agent of divine wrath. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth. There's a number of purpose statements from Jesus in the Gospels. We can go to Luke 19, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John chapter 6, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. In John 18, he says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So there's a number of places where Jesus uses this sort of a formulation, a purpose statement. This is why I came. And here, Jesus gives another such purpose statement. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Fire is consistently used in Scripture as a metaphor for judgment. If you remember back earlier in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist had said this about Jesus as he prepared the way. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John said, He, speaking of the Messiah to come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? With fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is something the Messiah will do. Fire is used to describe God's judgment for good reason, because it's actually more than a metaphor. God actually uses fire to enact his judgment many places in Scripture, We see it in the first few chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve sin, they are banished. They are driven out of the garden. And there's cherubim that are placed there at the entrance to guard the way and a flaming sword that turns every direction. That's a threat. That's fire. That's judgment. 
if they were to re-enter without authorization. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's two priests, two sons of Aaron named Nadab and Abihu, and they come in and they offer what the Bible calls strange fire before the Lord, unauthorized fire. God had given all these instructions as to how the priests were to minister, and they said, we're going to do it a different way, probably taking their cues from their pagan neighbors. And it says that fire came out from the holy place and consumed them. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 35, there's a rebellion in, in Israel against Moses and against his leadership. There's a man named Korah. He and his family and many in their clan rise up and they try to cast off the leadership of Moses, God's appointed man. And fire came out and consumed 250 of them in the wilderness. Perhaps most famously, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, judged by God with literal fire and brimstone that falls from the heavens. When Jesus says, I come to cast fire on the earth, it should be clear. He's talking about the judgment of God. Not only does fire symbolize judgment and punishment for sin, but it also has this idea of purification included with it. When wickedness is burned away, what is left over is refined and purified. If we go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a day, a future day when the Messiah comes Isaiah 4, verse 4 says, It's a day when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. The Messiah will bring a judgment, a fiery judgment that purifies. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Speaking of the return of the Messiah. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Jesus comes to bring this judgment, to bring a refining, purifying kind of judgment as God's Messiah. If you remember in the passage right before this, which we looked at last week, Jesus has been telling his disciples that they need to be ready for his return, that they need to be prepared, that they need to be watchful, like servants that are waiting for their master, because a judgment is going to take place. And here, Jesus indicates that he, as the Messiah, is God's agent of divine wrath. It will be through Christ that this judgment is rendered on a wicked world. This is Jesus is right, and it is his duty because of who he is, the Son of Man. In John chapter 5, 27, Jesus says that he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Father has given authority to the Son to execute judgment as the Son of Man. Now, we like to think of Jesus as a Savior, and he is. But make no mistake, he is also the judge. And by the way, this eschatological judgment that Jesus refers to won't be the first time that he's been the agent of God's divine wrath. It's fascinating. In the little book of Jude, verse 5, Jude writes, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude says that when we read the Old Testament and we see the judgment of God on the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness, that Jesus was the one executing that judgment. Who destroyed them? 
Who brought judgment on Israel? It was the second person of the Godhead. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. Listen to how Revelation 19 describes Jesus, the Messiah, at his return. Revelation 19, verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is speaking of Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. It's a symbol of authority. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of God, the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does your understanding of Jesus include him treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty? This is not the Jesus of the TV shows. It's not the Jesus you see in the commercials. This is not the Jesus that we find in too many women's Bible studies and kids' Sunday school curriculums and stained glass windows and country music songs. This is the biblical Jesus. And what he tells us about himself is that he is the agent of God's divine wrath. This is why, by the way, the demons tremble. In James chapter 2.19, it says the demons believe God is one and they shudder, they tremble in fear. It's because they know that Christ is the agent of God's divine wrath and that they are destined to experience his judgment. This is why when, when Jesus confronts the legion of demons that are afflicting that poor man, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. They begged Jesus not to pronounce judgment before the time because they know. They know about what Revelation 6, verse 16 calls the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this casting fire on the earth has not happened yet. In fact, it would not be accomplished in his first coming. This will actually be a feature of the second coming, Jesus says elsewhere in John chapter 3 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This first coming of Jesus is to bring salvation. It is to rescue and to heal and to deliver and to save. But he's not done. There's no contradiction between John 3, 17 and Luke 12, 49. It's actually by virtue of his coming that Jesus took on flesh. He became the son of man, the one whom God would exalt over the nations. And it is at his return that this wrath will be poured out. This is what was prophesied centuries before in Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You feel encouraged yet? It's true, Jesus does show remarkable compassion. We can find it page after page in Scripture. He touches lepers, he heals the sick, he weeps over Jerusalem, he welcomes the little children who come to him. 
He is gentle and meek and lowly. That is true. But this aspect of his authority and his mission is also just as true. We don't get to just pick which is our favorite attribute of Christ. Some people love the gentleness and the meekness and the compassion, and they shy away from the Jesus who says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And there's some of you who love the fact that Jesus came to cast fire on the earth. You want to stand up and beat your chest and say amen, but you don't like the parts where Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek, where he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. We don't get to pick our favorite attribute of Christ. We need to let all of scripture speak. If your conception of Jesus is missing this aspect of who he is, that he is God's agent of wrath, then you need to listen to Jesus' own words. When we begin to see Jesus like this, when we recognize his authority to judge, not only will we, like Psalm 2.11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son, we will offer him loyalty and submission, but we will also realize that since he will judge the earth, get this, we don't have to. In fact, we are not allowed to. Vengeance belongs to him. There's a lot of wickedness in our world. Let me urge you, Christian, if you're fired up about that, let Jesus be the judge. We don't need to breathe fire and brimstone. We don't need to burn anything down. We don't need to be the agents of divine wrath. Jesus already has that job covered. Our job is to be messengers of good news. Our job is to be ambassadors for Christ, to urge people to plead with them to be reconciled to God. We warn people of the wrath to come and we tell them the truth and we point them to the only hope of rescue because the Jesus who came to judge also came to save. Besides, our wrath, our anger, is like a feeble match compared to the forest fire of divine wrath that Jesus will bring. James says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I don't think Jesus needs our help casting fire on the earth. If you will honor Jesus as the judge, you will let him do that job. The Messiah's mission is to be the agent of divine wrath. But there's a second insight Jesus gives us into who he is and why he came, and it's found in verse 50. The Messiah's mission is also to be the object of divine wrath. I'm just going to start at the beginning of verse 49 again. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus makes two very personal comments here. The first is he says, and would that it were already kindled. Or you could say, I wish that it were already kindled. I wish that that moment was here. You might say, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, it may be that he longs to see God's justice displayed, that he longs to see wickedness brought to an end. And that's true. But I think the next phrase actually offers us a clue of what he means. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is, to accomplish, until it is accomplished. You see, the day of judgment that Jesus refers to, this casting fire on the earth, is future. And Jesus knows that he actually has other business to attend to before that day comes. 
And what looms in the very near future is something that Jesus wishes were already past. Not only is Jesus the agent of divine wrath in the eschatological judgment, he would also be the object of divine wrath in the judgment that would take place on the cross. Jesus refers to this experience as a kind of a baptism. Baptism, this word simply means to submerge or to immerse. And it may sound strange for us to to hear Jesus refer to his suffering on the cross as a baptism. But we actually speak like this too. How many of you have ever said, I really feel buried at work right now? Or perhaps, man, that, that business is just drowning in debt. Or maybe you look with compassion on someone who's lost a loved one and you say, their, their family is just flooded with grief. I think you get the idea of what Jesus is meaning when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Jesus knew that he was going to be crushed by the avalanche of God's divine wrath against our sin. This was necessary to accomplish our salvation. In fact, the word that Jesus says, that he uses here, when he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished, that word accomplished is the same word Jesus will use when he cries out on the cross, it is finished. It's done. It is complete. It has been accomplished. The debt would be paid in full. The wrath of God against our sin would be satisfied. You see, God's wrath, God's judgment falls on every sin. There is never a single sin in the history of the universe that is not judged by God. Either we will be judged by it eternally in hell forever, or Jesus will be judged in our place at the cross. But God's forgiveness does not mean he ever sweeps anything under the rug. Every debt gets paid. Every receipt is checked. And Jesus knows this is his destiny, to be the object of the Father's divine wrath so that we might become the objects of the Father's mercy. Jesus knew that. His face is set towards Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples in Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. When Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things, our minds probably run to thinking about the beatings and the, 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 the cat of nine tails that he was flogged with and the nails that are driven through his hands and his feet. But when Jesus says many things, he knows it includes far more than that. He knew it included the wrath of God that would be poured out on him in that moment. This was no easy task for Jesus. In fact, it brought him indescribable anguish just to know that this was coming soon. The knowledge of what he would have to endure was crushing in on him. The word distress here has the idea of being pressed in from all sides. It was gripping his soul. It was weighing on him like a hunk of lead. No matter where he went, no matter what he did, the knowledge of what lay ahead was always right there, always under the surface, always in the back of his mind. We talked a few weeks ago about a sinful kind of anxiety that sometimes we experience where we don't trust God. We worry about tomorrow. We distrust his faithfulness and are concerned about worldly things. 
And we ought to repent and, and renounce such sinful anxiety. But this is not that. The distress that Jesus is experiencing is something different. It's instructive to us that trusting in God and believing his promises doesn't mean that you're not going to go through hard things. It doesn't mean that you won't even experience deep agony and distress in your soul, these negative emotions that we don't like to feel. Jesus was without sin, yet he experienced deep sorrow, deep anguish, what you might even call a holy kind of anxiety, as he knew what lie ahead. And he experienced this not because he didn't trust his father. He experienced it because, precisely because he did trust his father, because he was submitted to his father's will. His knowledge of God's sovereign plan did not cause him to be numb to the emotional turmoil of recognizing that he was going to the cross to become the object of divine wrath. The anguish of the soul would become most intense for Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was brought to his knees by this crushing knowledge of what the next day would bring. In Luke 22, verse 41, it says he withdrew from them, from Peter, James, and John, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a moment of profound emotional and spiritual and even physical anguish for Christ. What I'm convinced was an even far greater temptation for him than what he faced in the wilderness when Satan came to tempt him. This was a test of his nerve, a test of his trust in his father, a test of his love for us, a test of his willingness to follow through with what had been planned in eternity past. And he labors in prayer as he wrestles with this reality. None of us can understand the weight of that moment. None of us even has the slightest sense of what that might feel like. Yes, we've experienced distress and anguish and turmoil, but nothing compared to the Son of God contemplating what it would be like to taste the wrath of his Father. It wasn't the beatings or the lacerations or the nails that caused Jesus to tremble. It was the knowledge that on the cross, as Paul puts it, he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. That the vile and obscene and corrupt sinful thoughts and actions and words that you and I have committed that all of that would actually be placed on his shoulders. That he would become, as Paul says in Galatians, a curse for us. That on the cross, the Son of God, having taken on a human nature, would experience something that was completely foreign. He had only known the Father's perfect and infinite love, but he would taste his wrath. Jesus would cry out on the cross the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul writes, This cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It burst forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned for us. In that moment, on the cross, as Jesus hung there, the sky would turn dark, the earth would quake, the the 
curtain in the temple would be torn in two from top to bottom. Something cosmic and profound was taking place. As your sin and my sin and the sin of every believer, whoever lived and whoever will live, was nailed to the cross and God poured out the cup of his wrath upon Jesus Christ. The same wrath that would take an eternity to pour out on a finite man. The same wrath that would take an eternity of hell to atone for was condensed into those few hours and poured out on Christ. Focused on the infinite God-man who alone could pay that price for sinners. And Jesus experienced all of that so that we wouldn't have to. So that we could be forgiven so that the plan of salvation determined in eternity past could be fulfilled. Friends, that's what people need to know about Jesus, that he became the object of divine wrath so that we wouldn't have to. People don't just need to know that he gets us. They need to know that he suffered for us, that our sin deserves wrath and that Jesus stood in our place. Who's going to tell them? We can't depend on the advertisers. That's our job. We get to tell people the good news, that Jesus became the object of wrath, that he suffered in our place as the Passover lamb, as the scapegoat. The symbolism is on every page of scripture, the language of substitution. He laid down his life so we might live. This reality is not just something we need to tell others about. It's also something we need to treasure. We ought to search out the mystery of his wounds. We ought to regularly wonder at the price that was paid for our salvation. We ought to marvel at the fact that what we deserve, we do not receive, and what he received, he did not deserve. Has that been part of your meditation this week? Have you lingered at the cross to consider what Christ did for you and that he did it on purpose? He was not a victim. He went there willingly. No one forced him to. He wanted to do it because he wanted to glorify his father and he wanted to save you. He loves his father and he loves his people. He loves sinners. So despite the anguish of knowing what it would cost him, despite the fact that Jesus says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished, Jesus kept his face set like a flint. He's marching to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what would take place. The Messiah's mission is to be the agent of God's wrath, but also to be the object of God's wrath. There's a third insight Jesus gives us into his mission. It's in verses 51 through 53. The Messiah's mission, third, will bring division on the earth. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against mother, or son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I'm not going to make any jokes about mother-in-laws. Now, why does Jesus bring this up, this idea of division? Well, keep in mind that the disciples who believe Jesus is the Messiah, they have certain expectations, even biblical ones, that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace, that he would bring peace 
on the earth, that he would drive out the Romans, that he would establish the kingdom, that he would bring about an age of rest and prosperity and restoration for Israel. And they didn't make this up. Zechariah 9.10 says that the Messiah shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Remember what the angels said when Jesus was born. They declared to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But what the disciples didn't realize was that while they could individually experience peace with God, through the saving work of Christ, because he would die in their place. The national peace, the global peace, the universal peace, what they were looking for would be a feature of his second coming, like the judgment, and it would not be part of his first coming. In this age, the gospel will actually become a cause for offense. The message of Christ, his claims to be the son of God, His call that all men must repent and believe will actually bring division. The old man Simeon, when he took up baby Jesus in his arms, prophesied this in Luke 2, 34. Simeon, standing in the temple, blessed them and said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The fall and rising, division, separation, Dividing people in both time and in eternity into two different groups. You see, to some, the gospel message draws them in. But to others, this message that Jesus is preaching will actually repel them. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. I don't have to tell you that there are opposite and opposing reactions to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that even families can be divided. To be a follower of Jesus creates new loyalties and it breaks old ones. Some people may resent your decision to follow Christ. Some people may not understand why you think the Bible is true and actually want to live your life by it. Some people may be frustrated or annoyed or angry or offended at the things that you believe. This is part of the cost of following Christ. It's one aspect of what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. This reality that Jesus reminds us of, that that he actually comes to, to bring division, not peace in this age. That ought to be something that measures our expectations. I think there's a a good and holy desire in many in the church today to see the gospel go forth and bear fruit and to see the world united and to see peace take place in this age. There's some who even believe that the kingdom will be brought about gradually by the faithful efforts of the church. But listen to what Jesus says. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? In the Greek language, his answer is emphatic. He says, no, I tell you. Do not think that, but rather division. He says, for from now on, in one house, there will be division. This phrase, from now on, indicates from this point moving forward, this is the norm. This is how things are going to be. 
This is not what some people would call a pessimistic theology. This is not us reading our cynicism into scripture. We simply acknowledge that in this age, there's a division between believers and unbelievers, and that division will always be present. And the peace that we long for, the peace of Christ, the peace of his kingdom ruling over all, is a feature of Christ's kingdom that occurs only once he returns. It will not take place in this age. At the return of Christ, as he judges the wicked, as he defeats Satan, as he destroys death, he will bring about an age of peace. But that's not going to take place until Christ comes back. So we should not look at the church and somehow think that if the church was doing its job, then somehow there would be greater peace on earth. That's not what Jesus said would happen. He said, from now on, there will be division. Because of what I'm calling you to, because of this message of the gospel, because of what I'm claiming, because of what I'm doing, it's going to have a polarizing effect on people. This should serve as a warning to us as well. If you're unwilling to experience that division, if you're unwilling to be identified by the gospel as belonging to one of two sides, then you're headed for spiritual disaster. There are many today who want the world's approval. They cannot stomach this division. And therefore, they are willing to entertain compromise on the clear teachings of Christ because they want to avoid the offense of the cross. That's dangerous. There are some who crave a connection with a romantic partner. Some who crave and desire the love and trust of a child. Other who desperately want the approval of a parent, but they want to avoid the offense of the cross. Don't forget what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We'll dive deeper into that text in a few weeks, but the language of hate here is a word that refers to covenant loyalty, saying your highest loyalty is no longer to your family. It has to be to me. And if your highest loyalty is not to me, if you're not willing to violate your commitments even to your own family, then you cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As I studied this text this week, I felt grief. I felt heaviness because I know that so many of you have lived out this painful experience. Most of us have unbelieving family, and some of us have unbelieving family that's actually hostile towards Christ, and therefore sometimes hostile towards us. Perhaps you have a wayward child who resents your commitment to Christ. Perhaps you have a frustrated parent who keeps you at arm's length because of your Christianity. Perhaps you have a sibling who is adversarial towards you, because of your convictions and your submission to the word of God. I know for some in our church, this has even been something that's driven a wedge in their marriage. So I bring this up with the knowledge that this is painful. This is where some of you live every day. And it's easy when that's your experience to feel like something is wrong, that there's this division that you're experiencing And it is wrong, morally speaking. It's wrong in the sense that people should not reject Christ. But that doesn't mean that your experience is out of the ordinary. It doesn't mean that what you have suffered 
is somehow different than what many faithful believers have experienced throughout history. Jesus says that this is to be expected. It's part of the cost of following Christ. And I want to offer you two encouragements this morning. If that's been your experience, if you've tasted the bitterness of that division in your own home, consider, first of all, that there is a family and a unity that you gain when you come to Christ. Yes, there is something that you have lost, at least for now. But there's also been something that you have gained. Luke chapter 8, verse 20 When Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. When you come to Christ and believe in the gospel, you're adopted into the family of God. He is your father. You are his son. You are his daughter. And you gain siblings. You gain a new family. You have a place to belong. And the family that you belong to will never be divided. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, as Peter tells Jesus, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We've given up everything. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If I could just speak a word of encouragement to you today. Your loss and your sacrifice is worth it. Christ promises to reward, to bless. What you inherit in this age in a spiritual family is precious and valuable. And what you will inherit in the age to come will acknowledge and will heal the pain and the grief and the loss that you have to deal with in this life. The experience of division is temporary. There is an eternal peace coming. Division is the norm for now, but the return of our king will bring peace, a peace that will be ours to enjoy forever. The antagonism, the opposition, the division, the adversity, the alienation, the conflict that we experience now, it has an expiration date. I love how Jesus reminds us of in terms of contrast, this peace that we can look forward to. In Isaiah chapter 11, it's described this way. Now, Isaiah 11, verse 6, speaking of the peace that is to come, when all of this division is over, it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In the age to come, when Christ returns, there's going to be an undoing of the very effects of the curse. It will be a time of peace, a time of safety, a time of security. And the divisions and the conflicts we experience now will one day be a thing of the past. Friends, the mission of Jesus the Messiah has great significance. It has great consequence. His mission 
is to be the agent of divine wrath. His mission is also to be the object of divine wrath. And his mission will bring division in this age. The question is, do we get Jesus? Do you see him rightly? Do you understand who he is and what he came to do? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you believe that the cost of discipleship is worth it and that the one who suffered in our place is a faithful and merciful savior? I hope you do. Lord Jesus, as we weigh these heavy words that you shared with your disciples and with us, we recognize how necessary it is for us to have the whole picture. We recognize how important it is that we have a realistic understanding of who you are and the nature of your mission. Lord, for those who have experienced the cost of following Christ and experienced this division, I pray that you'd give comfort and encouragement today, that they would believe it's worth it, that they would continue to look to you for their comfort, that they would receive the grace that you give in their spiritual family, the church. I pray that you would give them comfort as they anticipate the coming peace that we will enjoy in the age to come. Lord, I pray that you would make us mindful as we go from here of the incredible cost, not just the cost for us to follow you, but the cost to you to call us as followers. You paid the price on the cross. I pray that your agony, your suffering under the wrath of the Father would be something that grips our souls and stirs our affections, that it would humble us they would also give us confidence, knowing that there is no more wrath left for us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who may be afraid to consider your wrath because it brings up guilt, it brings up shame, it brings up fear, I pray that right now they would look to the cross and believe that it was accomplished, that it is finished. Lord, give us the joy of freedom, knowing, believing that you have atoned for our sins. And Lord, as we consider the future judgment that is to come, may we live today as those who belong to your kingdom and may we be faithful to tell others the truth, to warn them, to plead with them, to be reconciled to you, to experience the peace of God that only comes when we have peace with God. May we be faithful to preach the gospel and to look for your return. Amen.